Okay, uh, let's start it. Um, okay, good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to the weekly voice chat again. Actually, this morning, I wanted to show my uh, Interactive Brokers page on this uh, portfolio analyst, but uh, somehow they are doing this scheduled maintenance, so not able to show any numbers here. But I think it's fine. Uh, we can still use um, the Google Sheets that I you know, I shared, right, so that you can take a look at my portfolio in details for those who are really uh, curious, right? So actually, uh, before we start talking about this page, right, um, I, I just want to share. Uh, I think last uh, crisis, right, that was March uh, 2020. Um, I think that time my portfolio is not like, uh, I, I mean, it's much smaller than uh, today's size. Nah. And then, you know, the drawdown in March 2020, it was around 30%-ish. Uh, so that was really like very sharp drop, right? You can just pull up the chart and see it's, it's really like uh, shocking given how fast it can drop. Then uh, after that, market has recovered. And I always, uh, I told myself, right? I said, okay, um, you know, all these uh, small and big crises, right? It will come, it will, it will come from time to time. And I, I would say, if my portfolio doesn't drop by 100,000, right? Then maybe it's not considered like a correction stuff. Why I'm thinking that is that, um, you know, my portfolio, when it peaks, right, it's already like 400,000 plus. So, uh, Singapore dollar. So imagine that if I keep on building my portfolio to, uh, 500,000, right, I only need like 20% drop and then my portfolio will have like dropped from the peak to bottom will be 100,000, right? So, so that was my thinking. I think let's say around late 2021. Oh no, late 2020 or throughout 2021. Uh, but then uh, what surprised me is that how soon it, it, it came, right? Uh, I mean, if you look at the portfolio uh, or the stock market in the recent weeks, right, it's really like we can feel the stress, uh, uh, you know, some, some stocks drop more than the others. Some actually drop like more than 50%, right? So that's quite scary also. Yeah, that's, that's just an opening. Um, yeah, we can take into, uh, look into the details. So for those who are new uh, to this group, right, uh, this, Google Sheets, actually, the link is uh, at the group description. So you can just copy paste into your browser. You can take a look at my position. I try to update this as soon as possible, which is usually within like two days of my um, trades. Uh, but bear in mind that this is just a long-term portfolio uh, because for other short-term trades, for example, like options, um, like my cash, even if sometimes I use future for like short-term trades, right, I, I won't uh, record into, into this portfolio. But, but then my portfolio is like confirmed more than 90 or 95% is all uh, in this portfolio. So, so this is like a good representative of my portfolio already. Okay. Uh, this is just to show that, okay, what was the, the average price, uh, that, that I bought at and then the current price and then the PL of, of each portfolio, right? Then I think this, uh, chart is more meaningful just to show you guys like, okay, you know, in my, some, some of my YouTube videos, I have shown, um, I talked about Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, TSMC, Tesla, Nvidia, all this, uh, we have discussed in the past. Then you can take a look at my allocations, right? So you know that, okay, how bullish am I on certain companies? I would say that for now it's fairly diversified because I just started up, uh, this entire interactive brokers portfolio since 2017. And then the single names, right? Like all these Apple, Microsoft, I think I just started building up the portfolio since 2020. So, so it's a rather new portfolio. Um, I, I would expect that uh, as time progress, right? Let's say if there's any uh, companies that that's doing uh, much better than the others. 
so the allocation will, will increase uh, uh, consistently. It, it will increase more than the others because I don't have the habit of like rebalancing, like uh, selling winners and then just uh, buy into those that drop in, in prices. For, for those that are doing well, I'll just keep it. Uh, yeah. Okay, then uh, let's take a look at the return. Um, this is like, like I mentioned in 2017, I started to build the portfolio. I started out with ETF. And then in 2020, I started to buy all these single names. Uh. So the single names, right, um, stocks, right, is in red color. And then the ETF is in blue colors. So you can see that the peak, right, is uh, in late 2021, November. So it hit as high as I think 440,000-ish. Let's say 440,000. And the latest one here is around 360,000. So you just minus this uh, portfolio value, right? And plus the monies that I put into my portfolio uh, in these three or four months, right? Um, that's roughly dropped by more than 100,000 Singapore dollar. I think it's around 110,000. So this is how much my portfolio has suffered. I, I think that work, work up to be around 20 to 25% loss. Uh, so it's definitely larger than S&P 500. Uh, mostly also because of the individual picks, uh, you know, especially those with the high growth uh, companies. Okay, you can take a look. Uh, these are the single names um, that I have bought. I have a total of 19 names here. So uh, I think some, some are like very small positions. Uh, but if you just look at the, let's say this is the year-to-date returns, right? Um, you know, some like Roblox, Shopify, this drop by, let's say more than between 40 to 60%. So uh, these are huge drop. Um, and this is these are all the, those stocks that listed on US exchange. I still have uh, Meituan and also Tencent listed on Hong Kong exchange, which is not available on Finlist. Uh, but those are dropped quite significantly as well, which you can see here. So I think the largest drop is Meituan. Um, my average price is 300. Right now it's like um, 135 Hong Kong dollars, right? So, you know, for this single position alone, my loss is like uh, 10,000 US dollar. So this is a huge position and huge loss for me. La. Okay, um, I'll just stop here first just to see uh, any questions uh, before we move on to the, to the next session. Uh, Wendy, I have a question. What was your percentage, uh, percentage gain at the peak? Um, I don't know how to quantify that. <laughs> I think the percentage you are seeing here, right, these are not representative of the entire performance because, uh, you know, position that I have sold, right, it will not appear here. Um, so, so this is not a good representative. Now. But right now, because there are uh, quite a sizable purchase that was made in 2020, let's say uh, first half of 2020, so that there's still some gains. Um, so uh, right now, I think the entire portfolio-wise, right, I'm, I'm still in the green. Uh, considered this portfolio uh, was built since 2017, but peak, um, I, I really don't know. But this percentage was was much higher. Uh, I would say, like, let's say 20 percent. Yeah. I see. I see. Thanks. If I can pull up something to to help answer this question, I, I'll pull up from the portfolio analyst. Uh, but right now, I, I don't have that information. <laughs> 
But to me, not that, that, uh, okay, I think that's a good question, right? Because, um, you know, we tend to look at the return, like, like we are in stock market, we tend to look at how much we can generate the returns, right? Um, but the way I view it, right, I don't want to pay so much attention to the return because, you know, returns, it sounds very good, right? right? Okay, I made like 100,000, sounds, sounds very nice, right? But actually, it doesn't help us with our financial goal, you know? Uh, what helps with our financial goal is actually the size of the portfolio. Imagine that, let's say, uh, this year I'm 36. Imagine that, uh, let's say I'm 60 years old and I have like $10 million, right? It's not a problem for me to retire, right? So I can, I can have a dividend portfolio and just receive dividends or I can just sell like 1% or 2% of my portfolio every year and I can still uh, retire well, right? So the key is to have a, a portfolio that is sizable enough for us to liquidate along our retirement life, right? So that's the goal. That's why, right, I, I would say let's pay less uh, attention to the return and pay attention to the size of the portfolio. And how we are building this size, right, there are mainly two sources, right? Number one is that the market return. So let's say, keep it simple, like we don't invest in single names, right? You just invest in, let's say, like S&P 500, right? Um, I mean, average return uh, in the past was around 10%. Even if you just assume that the future returns is 6%, right? And that 6% will still contribute a, a, a huge uh, portion of the growth moving forwards, right? Just imagine that you have 500,000. 6% of 500,000 is how much, right? It's already 30,000 per year. So that's, that's a very sizable returns after it compounded to a big uh, big size, uh, big portfolio. Uh. But before that, right, before it hits, right, let's say 500,000 right, or 1 million, right? Um, the portfolio growth is mainly uh, come through our contribution, the money that we put into the portfolio, right? You, you, you can hear people say, okay, uh, I get a 200% returns, right? Then how much you have in, in your portfolio? Mm, I have 20,000, I have 10,000. Even 10,000, you 2x or 3x, you only earn like 20,000, right? It, it doesn't help. So in the beginnings, right, I would say, let's say if you are in your 20s or 30s, I think you should focus on just putting as much money into the portfolio, right? Hit a certain size, let's say 500,000, 1 million, that kind of a size. And then you can like slow down a bit, right? Because once you hit like 1, 1 million, just having a 3%, 5% every year will give you a decent uh, compounding return uh, moving forward. Uh. So that, that's why I said, um, I don't show return in this table for that purpose. Uh, we should look at the size uh, of the portfolio and see how it compounds over time. Uh. The challenges is that the compounding is not like CPF, you know, like it just continue to compound year over year. There will be some period in certain months, even in years, right, that the, that the value will drop. Say one example, you, you see here, right, this, um, I, I don't know whether you can see clearly because it's, it's kind of small. Let me see uh, if I can enlarge it. A bit. Yeah, I can see. Yeah. You see here, there's a, there's a, I think here is close to 20% drop in the S&P 500. You can, you can look, look at the line here. La. From, from here, drop to here is, uh, it's like, I think close to uh, 20%. Then the portfolio also dropped, right? So you see, it dropped here. But because the portfolio size was still very small back then, um, I can just put in a couple of thousand, then I can recoup the losses already and, and times to move on, right? And when the market rally, right? So it will just rally, like, like you, you will see this part as very, very small. And same for this, you know, same for this period. 
as of now, the scale, right, is from zero to, let's say, 500,000. Then this drop become like very big, right? And because I will still continue to put money into the, my portfolio, right? So few couple of thousands every month, I will just put in. Even if market keep on dropping, I will still put it in, right? So let's say if uh, after one period, uh, well, let's say after one year, um, I'm able to recoup the losses just by putting in money, okay? Like this losses hundred thousands, right? Um, let's say one or two years, I can recoup that, right? Then after that, when market rally, right? And this line will not stay at this level anymore. It will just go past 450,000. It will, it will pass 500,000 in, in a couple of years time now. Not saying that I'm that bullish on the market. It's just saying that, um, we are building portfolio here. What is required is really the discipline to just keep on putting money in, right? Yes, over short period of time, you can see that, wow, market dropped 5%, wow, 10% drop. Hey, come on, 500,000 drop 10%, that's 50,000, right? Uh, how many of us here like have 50,000 um, like monthly income, right? I would say not many. Even if you have like 10,000 or more, that's like very impressive already, right? But, and even 10,000 uh, income doesn't mean you can save 10,000, right? So you probably need like a couple of months just to to um, like compensate for the market losses, right? But over a long period of time, market will not just like continue to drop and become zero, right? I mean, no, no such uh, good deal for us, uh, you know, all these companies, right? I mean, uh, we, we, are, we are talking about like global companies. These are the companies with very solid uh, fundamentals, good business model, um, very uh, strong mode. So we can st still see that their revenues are uh, is growing, right? Even with a recession coming, they might slow down for, uh, let's say, one or two years. But after that, they will still continue to grow, right? So their values will continue to, to compound. And our portfolio for sure will compound together with the values. Uh. Yeah. So, so this is like looking at short term is very different compared to looking at long term. Uh. Short term, yes, you can, you can just pull out the, the uh, uh, blog or the article that you just shared, right? Okay, we can just say, okay, uh, yield curve inversion, wow, very scary. And then interest rate hike, wow, very scary. Wow, war summer, very scary. Like, wow, should we really like, sell everything and just park in cash and just play the market timing? Sounds, sounds like a smart thing to, to do, you know, like if you look at it from a short-term perspective. But over the long term, can you really like predict like when the market will turn, right? Just, just go back to March 2020. I, I, I can assure you, those who sold because of the COVID fear, right? Let's say they sold in uh, March, right? Very hard for them to like just buy back, you know, because it's so, it's, the situation was so scary that it's really like doesn't make sense to keep invested. Though. I mean, if, if you look at it from a feeling perspective, right? Like just look at how much the GDP, GDP, uh, uh, GDP drops, right? It's really, really scary. I'll, I'll just share. Like, and, and then um, we haven't encountered any pandemic in the past, don't know how many, like almost a decade, right? It's not a decade, that's a century, almost, almost 100 years. So, so that's why I said, um, yeah, be optimistic over the long term. Yeah, long-winded uh, response on that question. Thank, thanks a lot for the questions. Is there any other questions, anything that you guys are interested to know? Okay. Um, will, uh, will you, uh, will you um, um, sell some of those that are in the green and, you know, uh, 
I think they call it, you call it rebalancing, right? If I'm not okay. wrong. Uh, for the questions, I think that's a good questions. Um, yeah, this is my approach, right? Let me explain in a little bit more details. I think someone um, pointed out, right? Uh, on on what, what is this uh, things hiding here, right? So I don't know whether you guys can click on it uh, because I, I actually put this, you, you cannot change what is in the spreadsheet, but, but this thing, I don't know whether you can open up. Uh. So my approach, right, on, on portfolio management uh, is quite simple. So uh, actually, you don't have to focus on this column. Uh, this is just helping me to, to like come up with a, a target allocation that I want. So basically, these are my target allocations. There are companies that I'm, I'm uh, comfortable to put in more monies, for example, like Microsoft, Apple, um, Amazon, these are the companies that I'm comfortable to put in like 14%. Then there are companies that are smaller, right? For example, like C Limited, um, like uh, other companies, for example, like uh, Netflix. This I, I only put like, okay, target allocation is only 1%. Uh. I think these are just for me to have some um, skin in the game and for me to like just look into their business more and, and see whether I want to increase my allocation uh, or not. Uh. So these are like just like a starting position for me. So, you know, all this from here to here, excluding the ETF, right? It added up to 100%. And then um, by looking at how much I have, right? The the the, uh, the investment that I have for non-ETF, right? This is 200,000. Then I just compare against my actual allocations. And I will see that out of these positions, right? Which one is uh, over allocated and which one is under allocated, uh? So let's say if I put in money and I want to invest, right, I'll just take a look here and see, okay, which one is in the green? For example, Amazon is in the green, right? Because according to my target allocations, I'm supposed to have 30,000 here, but uh, my actual allocation, allocation is only 29,000. So I'm short, for example, like 1,000 plus here, right? So I might consider actually putting money here uh, into Amazon just to make up for the target that I want to uh, meet. Uh. So I think this one will help out a bit in terms of rebalancing. For example, if the company's the share price drop, right, uh, the value will drop, but the allocations will stay relatively the same, right? So I, I will actually see it as a green here, and I and I can decide whether I want to invest, right? Say for example, if I see that their uh, fundamental is not doing that good, then maybe I will just keep it green for a while and just delay my purchase and and maybe invest in other companies. Now. So this is uh, my way of rebalancing. I sometimes I will sell some positions and buy those that I'm more bullish on, but I will say that is relatively rare because, you know, as I put in money, I can decide where to put in, right? So I can always buy those that is under allocated. Uh. No need to do so much on those that is like over allocated. For example, like you see Apple, right? Since uh, I invested into Apple, the, the share price actually really uh, like quite a fair bit compared to the others. So my investment right, is actually not that big, um, but because of the share price increase, the position has increased uh, quite a lot. But, but if you just look at this uh, over allocations, right, I have no intention at all to sell uh, and to rebalance to others. Uh. I might even buy more because um, I foresee that their fundamentals remain quite strong. And you know, during this period of uh, like, there's some fear in the markets, right? Uh, money will f flow back to uh, companies that that's having more uh, fundamental like stronger fundamentals uh. and apple is always have a good fundamentals so you just look at the cash allocations in their balance sheet right so they have no problem to withstand uh, let's say like interest rate high and so on so 
So uh, that, that's, that's my approach on, on rebalancing. A any other questions? Okay. Um, if you could, are you holding uh, any cash at the moment? Um, in terms of cash, actually, no. <laughs> I I have some negative margin in the account. I think probably around negative, like ten thousands margin in in my account la. So I have no um like no cash buffer at the moment. So you know, like really fully invested uh at the moment. How do you mm. track? your annual performance like in, your mm. your you need to have like realized loss unrealized loss right every, every year mm. how, how do you know that you're making money or how much you, you earn percentage wise yeah this one uh actually can be seen from this but it's not shown here lah. but uh i will receive the report uh from uh, interactive brokers that's why i can see that whether you today my performance is uh good or bad actually i shared some uh screenshot to the group before right so i'm actually behind like uh, behind S&P 500, let's say in the past uh, year today and also in the past one year, I'm, I'm like a couple percentage off compared to S&P 500 now. So that one I would say is the is the most comprehensive one because it even include my um, like short-term trading and so on, right? So so that one is all in already. It will, so it will show the money-weighted return. Okay. Mm. So how about you, you invest since 2017? Like what is your annualized return so far? For, for this past five years? Uh, wow, well, I good, <laughs> good question. I think, you know, when the market peaked, right, in November, that number is showing quite high. I think it's in the range of 20 plus percent annualized returns. Mm. But after that, since the market drops, right, because this actually uh, is heavily influenced by the, like, like the current market. And if you look at current snapshots, right? Like later, I'll pull the numbers after the call. I'll just share that as screenshot. I think it's quite low. It's like in the range of like 10% or so. So it's still positive, but it's much lower compared to just three months back. Yeah. I don't have the numbers on top of my mind right now. Yeah, because I'm trying to figure out, right? Because yeah. your, your portfolio, you have a lot of cash injection as well, right? So it's like kind of like very hard to figure out. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Let, let me explain why uh, that number sometimes is not representative of the overall return. Because w when we look at the return, there are mainly two ways to look at it. Uh, the first one, we call it the uh, money-weighted return. The second one, we call it the time-weighted return. Um, the, the, the difference between these two, right, is that um, the time-weighted returns, basically, you don't need to care like when you put in the money. Basically, let's say if you invest in S&P 500, right? You just look at the S&P 500 lines, okay? Then you say, okay, how much the the, the S&P index has moved from one point to one point, then you can calculate the time-weighted return. You don't need to know like, okay, whether uh, I have put in money along the way or I pull money out. These kind of things you don't need to know. That's the time-weighted return. That's the neutral uh, way to look at the time period, right? And if you will get the time-weighted return, meaning that your money-weighted return will be the same as time-weighted return if you only invest one bullet at the beginning and then just liquidate at the end. So in that scenario, these two approaches right, will give you exactly the same return. Okay, uh, then now let me explain what is money-weighted returns, right? The money-weighted return, it will be uh, influenced by how much money and when you put in into your portfolio. 
So if you do a DCA, right, let's say here, I put in money, put in money, put in money, put in money here, right? Uh, across this period, right? What happened is that in the beginning, the market can rally quite a fair bit, right? From this point to this point. But I have only small um, money invested here because my portfolio was small back then. But as I DCA and I put in more money into the second half of this period, right? But the return from, let's say, this point to this point is much smaller than this point, this beginning point to the end point here. So what it means that if you do a DCA, right, your money-weighted returns will, will scale to the return in the recent period. So if you see the the return is much higher if I just invest in, invest in one bullet from 2017, right? If I only started DCA uh, in the past, let's say, 12 months, right? The return might be already zero because some money is invested in, in when the market is in, in high, uh, all-time high in November, right? So this money that, that was deployed in November, they, they are making loss already. So you average out, you might already in the in the red, right? So that's why I said, uh, if we, we tend to look at money-weighted return because that is, uh, that's what's influenced our portfolio return. Because uh, you know how, when we put in the money, actually play play a role in in all in in the in the total returns, right? But it will be heavily skewed by the current market situations, uh. Like if recently market performance perform uh is, has performed badly, right? Then the money weighted return will be very low. Yeah, I, I think I always have an impression that the time weighted return is more for portfolio fund manager, right? Because they are trying to attract investor throughout the period. So they want to tell people the investment performance, right? But money weighted is more like, to my impression, it's more for retailer because it's money in the pocket. Yeah, exactly. Um, actually, why uh, portfolio managers only look at time weighted return is because how much money that they have, right, in their in their funds, right, is not under their control. It's actually decided by the investors, right? Investor can pull out the money anytime they want, right? So you shouldn't penalize them for the the, the money weighted returns right because they it's not their fault <laughs> it's not their fault because let's say if there's a lot of money flowing in in november and then now they just pull out right your money weighted return is very low but that's the investor fault not the uh, fund manager's fault right so to be fair to them they only decide how much to allocate the the um, allocations you should really just look at their um their time weighted returns but we manage our own money. We decide how how much to put into the portfolio, when to put into the portfolio, and once put into the portfolio, how to allocate the portfolio. Right? All these three decisions are all decided by by us individually, right? So we should look at the money weighted returns. So there's a, a little bit difference, huh? So for yeah. example, if I'm managing your money now. And after this drop, right, you say you want to pull the money out, right? I said, no, right? now, now not a good time to pull your money out. You said, I, I don't care. I just want to pull your money. I said, you will, you, you will suffer a loss. You said, you, you don't care, right? Then pull out. Oh. Then what it means is that uh, you decide um, the, the timing of the, the flow, right? That, what it means is that actually you, you will suffer this loss, right? Yeah. So I, I think this is uh, quite important. So, uh, a huge distinction. Hmm. I hope this is not too uh too like um technical so just to explain these points uh, but because these these concepts sometimes can be quite quite uh how to say quite confusing uh to some. 
Okay, um, let's move on to the next session. Um, I, I just want to explain a bit, like for especially for those who are new, um, to investing, right? Um, you know, I've seen people in their twenties, sometimes in their thirties, still very young. Probably you still have like fifty years uh ahead, right, in your investment journey, but yet every investor we are we are so worried about all like all this like uh month to month uh market fluctuation, right? So I just want to to draw some diagram just to help out, like to explain why we shouldn't like uh, be worried so much on on market fluctuations, uh. Okay, so so uh, let just bear with me for for seconds to to do this kind of drawing, uh, and and then later please give me some feedback whether this will this is helpful or not. So um, I mean for our investment journey, right? Um, I I guess like let's say for eighty percent or ninety percent of uh of you listening here. Um, you probably are working and then you are having some saving, right? And with that saving, you put some money into like different uh, investments, right? It could be like deposit, it could be some bond, it, it could be CPF, it could be um, equities, um, or like even real estate, right? Different sort of, of investment. But for stock portfolio, right? Just focus on stock portfolio. So what, what happened is that this is the timeline, right? Okay. Um, at some point, we will die, right? And then... Um, at some point, we'll retire, right? Hopefully, we'll retire early and then die not so soon, okay? Um, and then this is the, just to illustrate, like, okay, how, how we put in the money, right? I, I mean, in terms of the flow of the money, okay? So, as I mentioned, you are working now, you, you, are, save, you are doing saving, right? So, let, let me represent this as the money that you put in, right? This is the money that you put into your portfolio. And you start to put, like, small... Uh, small number like small volume of num how to say small amount of money into your portfolio it could be like let's say you are working i don't know three thousand uh salary you can manage to save 500 right so you put 500 here and then as you work um and your salary increase your saving increase this uh money that you put into portfolio will actually uh increase over time right okay so this is the money that you put into your portfolio and then what happens is that we, we want to work to an extent that, okay, now we have a good portfolio size and then we hit the retirement. And that's when we will actually retire and liquidate the portfolio over time, right? So what happens is that you will start to retire and then you will actually pull up your money from the portfolio over time. And likely the money that you pull up from your portfolio also will increase over time now just because of the inflation, right? Don't expect that now you can uh, support your living with, let's say, two or three thousand dollars. You can do that in uh, twenty years or twenty years or thirty years later, right? It's not possible just because of the inflations, right? So this one will also increase. So you see that there's two period here, right? This is what we call the accumulation period, right? Accumulation period. This is what we call the um, the the accumulation period, uh. So basically, we pull up money uh, from the stock market. Then the next questions that I, I just want to ask, uh, like, given that this is the money that you put into your portfolio and this is the money that you pull out, right? If you can, like, plot the chart of S&P 500 or any investment that, that you put in, right? How would the chart looks like for you to maximize the payoff or maximize the outcome uh, in, in terms of your portfolio? Yeah, maybe just think for a second. Uh. Like, do you want the stock market to move like uh, like this? 
Or do you think it should look something like uh, like drop? How, how would it look like? Or, or you want it to increase very fast. Like now you just started out, right? You just started out here. You are just in the, like the first three or five years of your investment. You want it to increase very fast, right? And then just go to the moon, right? Well, I mean, what, what kind of expectation that, that you have uh, or what kind of chart that you want to see, right? Because what, what I try to bring up is that if, you, if the market increased too fast in the beginning, right? And because it increased too fast and the fundamentals doesn't increase as, as much, right? So what happened is that it just pulled the return to the current period and then it just moved up first and then it stay high, right? It, it won't go up as much anymore because the market is already expensive. And because of your ac accumulation period within this period, right? You are forced to buy your investment at a very high price, right? Is that, is that something that we want to see, you know? Or alternatively, you will rather the market just continue to drop, right? And that will give you a good opportunity to accumulate the investment that you like at an attractive valuation, right? And then hopefully over the long period of time with the growth of the fundamentals, this thing will grow, right? So what I'm trying to say here is that actually the best... Um, chart that can maximize the payoff right um, is something that looks like this it should drop very quickly and stay low for a very long period of time just co coincide with the period that you accumulate then right after uh, the end of your accumulation right, it just shoot up <laughs> this is this one right is the best payoff because you will just keep on buying 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 here when the when the level is very small here right when the level of the index is very low and then it, it just shoot up when you want to uh, deaccumulate and, and just liquidate, right? This is the best uh, outcome. But I mean, no, no such good thing. Right? This is like very, um, how to say, uh, it won't happen. Uh, but what I think really, realistic, how to say, uh, realistically speaking, right? The best outcome would be something like it should go down a bit and then over a long period of time, you just move up. Right? So that you get to accumulate when it is low and then deaccumulate when it when the when the um investment has appreciated. Uh. Okay. I, I know this this drawing has become like quite quite a mess here, but um I hope that this is a good illustration. Uh. So is this a portfolio level or stock level? Portfolio level. But if portfolio level, right? If you have like ten to fifteen years stay low, right? Most people would they have give up. <laughs> Ideally, I would. I think I would like the green color, right? <laughs> yes. Psychologically, you know I mean? we we would want to see something that is green, that like the green color. You want to see, okay, there's some traction. Then you continue to put in money. Then it continue to perform. Then the stock price just continue to go up. This is what we want to see from a psychological point of view. Okay, and this is usually. Let's say if the price go together with the fundamentals, this is the best that we want to see. And, and you don't have to, you know, suffer so much all this like emotional pain, right? But, but let, let's assuming that um, the fundamental is all good now. This is the basic assumption. Because if you say um, it drops and then the fundamental turn bad, right? Or war, right? Something bad, uh, some, something very bad turn out, right? And then it just go to zero. 
and and we just end here, right? This is the worst already, right? Because whatever money that you put into your portfolio, and then it just go to zero, right? Then you don't have you get you got nothing left. You got zero, right? This is the worst, right? But assuming that over the long term they are all well, right? You are diversified enough such that you don't choose the company that like like you are not focusing in one or two companies and that one or two companies just go to zero like with, with that just just not that scenario right as long as it is a solid portfolio diversified enough by enough i, I mean it could be like five eight positions right or, or pretty simply you can just invest in index right it should go up over time then what you actually want is that it should go, you, you want it to go down so that you can, you get to accumulate when it is cheap and then it should up, right? It, it's just like the period between, let's say, uh, 20, 2008 to 2016, for example. 2008, there's a market crisis, right? There, there are people who are really scared because of the crisis and just stay away from the market for like forever, you know? That's, that's really, uh, that's how scary it is during 2008, 2009. Uh. So, and that also give a lot of opportunity for those who haven't encountered any fi huge financial crisis, right? Those who entered um, the stock market in 2010 onwards, right? They'll just accumulate and accumulate and accumulate and as the fundamentals pick up, right? Then they get to enjoy this huge rally from 2010 until like 2021, right? So that's why I say, the drawdown that we are experiencing now, let's say probably 15% for S&P 500, right? It could drop 5, 10, 15, 20% in the next one, two, three, or five years. But um, I mean, my suggestion is that we should look at this uh, as a opportunity rather than something that is uh, so fearful that should discourage us from continue to, 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 to be invest, stay invested. Uh. Yeah. So, so that's uh, my message. I'll just pause here just to any feedback uh, from you guys are appreciated. Um, when, when would you decide to uh, cash out? Because, um, for example, let, let, let's say you plan to retire at 60, then, uh, you know, sweet, sweet, 60, let's say there's a, a crash, you know, then... You might be, you might feel uh, unwilling to cash out. So would you do it, you know, uh, um, at one go, or would you deaccumulate over, you know, maybe a five-year period? Yep. Thanks for the question. I think that's a very good question, and I think this question is very applicable to those who are, let's say, now 40, 45, not 40, uh, 40 is still far from retirement age, right? Let's say if you are 45, 50 or 55 years old, right? I think this question is uh, very applicable. The reason I, I say, right, I'm 36 years old um, and I'm comfortable to like put in 100% into equities. Uh, and I mean, all the, uh, I still have some money in, in CPF, right? So I think that's a different story and different buckets. But let's say talking about monies that I can, um, uh, free uh, free monies that I have, right? Uh, disposable money that I have, right? I can put 100% into equity also because I'm 36 years old, right? If I'm close to 50 years old, I don't think I can put that, uh, that, that like 100% into equities. Now. So in terms of like the accumulation, I would say that before I hit the retirement age, right? 
So this retirement age, it could be like, let's say, I don't know, like 60 years or 55 or, or any, or any age that I foresee that I might retire soon, right? Let's say this retire is 60, okay? Before I hit 60, right? Let's say between 50 to 60, right? Between this period, I will already start to do some saving into instrument that is not equities. Huh? For example, I might already put some money into some bond funds. Um, as long as it's not equities, huh? you know, equities, there will always this uh, risk that it might drop 30% and, and might not recover for 10, 10 more years, right? So I wouldn't make myself, right, okay, 100% stay equity until 60 and then just liquidate from the equities, right? Between this age, right, let's say five or 10 years before um, I retire, I put some money into bond funds or some just invest in some deposits, any, anything that is a uh, fixed income in nature, uh, just so that once I retired, I can first liquidate this money first, right? The bonds investment. Don't have to invest like, I mean, I, mean, I, I can just take the money from here first for let's say for between 60 to 70 years old, right? And then if the market is good between this period, right? Then I, I can already start to sell a little bit of my equities and just park into my, my, uh, bond or like deposit account just to make sure that I will always have enough buffer for me to withstand, like, like, like to liquidate over the next five to 10 years now. So it, it will always be a, like a five to 10 years rolling kind of view. Now. Of course, if the market is good, you can just put in more buffer here and then the market is bad. Then you just stay invested now because this money that I put in here, right? This will be like really, like how to say, if the monies that I put into the equities, right, I will not liquidate them if the market ha has any uh, experience, any form of uh, drawdown. Uh. I would say this is how it works, right? This is retirement, let's say 60 years old, right? The money that I put in here, right? This is, I, I invest in equities, right? Preferably it should, uh, fund my retirement, let's say when I'm 75 to 100. I'll buy equity, I'll fund here. So this is all the equity. Okay. So these are all equity. And then, um, closer to the end, like closer to retirement age, right? I might put my money into like bond, right? And then this will fund my expenses in this region. Right. You get what I mean? So, so what happened is that I can be assured that the money that I invest here into equities, I don't need that. I only need that uh, after like when I'm very old. Uh. <laughs> yeah. So that I can stay invested as long as possible. If I know that I will need the money, right, then I'll make sure that that money will be invested in something that is safe, which is like bond deposits. Uh, some, some, some low risk investment. So I would say, let's say if you are 55 years old, I, I guess people's here, right? If you are 55 years old, I'm sure that this group of people already have some investment into something that's safer. For example, like bonds, you know, CPF, you know, discount investment. So that's not a problem. Okay. Um, any other question? If not, uh, let's go to Slidos just to run through the question. Let me just take a look who's here, uh, whether you guys can help me to answer some question. Okay. 
I, w- I won't call the names. Uh, so if you have um, like any opinions on the questions raised here, please uh, please let me know. Okay, so I think there's uh, quite a long list here also. Okay, uh, let me read out the questions. Okay, the first one from Fu. Is China really uninvestable? Baba and Tencent are getting cheap even on bearish DCF. Many studies think China will overtake us and be the largest economy. Let me see. Uh, is ST here? ST is here, right? You, you want to give some comment? Because I saw you, you share a couple of uh, videos and articles. Like... Anyone want to want to share your uh, view with regards actually, to this? Yes. Actually, I'm too young to comment on this. Like, I just uh, learned from like, a lot videos, uh, a lot of videos about China and then I just do some without it. Uh. So basically, I would say uh, you can try to uh, do some research and do some read up and then also watch the those YouTube videos that I share. Yeah. Thanks a lot uh, for the comment. Yeah, I think this one, um, I think one good thing about uh, like these two companies, right, like Alibaba and Tencent, is that you know recently the price has dropped so much, right? It's all mostly due to um, some macro news, you know, like like for example, like all these macro news with, with regards to uh, the delisting risk. Um, there, there are some uh, some people talk about like uh, slowdown in China. I, I think these are what we call macro risk, right? And macro risk, right? Sometimes it's very scary because it will affect like most companies in the market. Uh, as of now, it affect like quite quite a number of uh, Chinese companies, right? But what good one good thing about uh, macro news is that it could be very bearish for a period of time, and it can turn suddenly also, you know. It's just like uh, pandemic situations, right? The, you see the during pandemic index dropped by 35%. You look at uh, individual stocks, right? Most of them also dropped by 30 to 50%, right? So it's, it's okay. they all drop together. Uh, it's not a single company uh, problem. So then the entire market won't like go to zero, right? So as, as the sentiment turn, right? They all will turn together. So, so I, I think... If you look at these two companies, I would say that they are just stuck in this uh, entire macro, bearish macro uh, situations, right? Um, if you can just stay invested, stay invested. If you are comfortable to deploy more money, you just continue to deploy and just take advantage of, of the um, low prices, right? If you are very bearish with regards to the um, Chinese regulations and you're just not comfortable to taking on this kind of risk, right? Like specifically on the delisting risk or uh, you don't know what the Chinese government will do, right? If you are not comfortable, then you can just stay away, right? So I think it really depends on your, um, how to say, your, your the, what, what kind of risk that you are uh, comfortable to take. Now. So this, this, I think, is not a huge problem for, for the companies mentioned. Like this, uh, I mean, Alibaba and Tencent, uh, they are the largest companies in China, right? But let's say if you are investing in some small companies, uh, like small cap, and if you look at their fundamentals, there is some serious concern with regards to their fundamentals, right? Especially if they are, the company itself is highly leveraged, right? Then I can't say that uh, stock price drop, then you just average down. Uh, I, I, I won't dare to make this kind of uh, statement, you know? Because for the smaller companies, highly leveraged companies, um, they can drop and then they can just... Uh, 
other companies might buy out and then it become a permanent loss from for you as an investor. Or it could like just become insolvent, right? There, there are quite a number of companies like this uh, in, in the past. Even just you look at uh, Singapore uh, stock market or, or Malaysia stock market. Uh, I mean, there are quite a number of examples, right? Where companies just drop and then they just uh, like bankrupt, right? Yeah. So be careful with that. But if you are diversified enough, invest in quality stocks, which I regard these two com companies as uh, quality companies, um, I, I don't see a huge uh, concern. Uh. But please be aware of the type of risk that you are taking. Uh, because, you know, if you say you are comfortable with the uh, regulatory risk, and then three months later, suddenly the uh, Chinese regulator just come up with new rules, right? And then there's back and forth between US and China, talking about all this delisting. Um, then market continues to sell off, right? Then you just need to accept that uh, because this is something that you already comfortable and you are taking and you are aware of the risk, right? Yeah. Okay, that's all from me. Uh, any other view? Anyone want to share your perspective? Okay, no, uh, let's move on. Um, anyone worried about lost years or even decade? Uh, people who have started at investing at the height will not be feeling very good. Anyone interested <laughs> to give your view on this? Who, who's who's uh, like among the view listener here, right? Anyone just started, let's say like less than six months or, or let's say it's less than one year. Anyone want to share your view on this? Okay, no view. I'll make a quick comment. I think uh, for this question, actually, I, I explained quite a fair bit when I draw out the diagram, right? I always think that, you know, if you are worried about like one year of bear market, right? Um, I mean, you just have to look at, um, let's say you look at S&P 500, right? You, you just need to look at the chart and then just zoom out and then look at the period between 2000 to let's say 2005 and then look at the period between 2007 to uh, 2012 or 13, right? Just look at those past period, uh, pay attention to when the market peak and then pay attention to when the market bottom. And then you will realize that actually if we enter into a recession, right? Um, it's quite possible that this type of market environment, it could it could actually extend for one year, two years, three years, four years down the road. It, it can it can actually like like just become so bearish that just stay there for four or five years, right? So I think for anyone who is investing in stock market, right? Why people always say that, okay, you should invest with more than 10 years horizon, right? You shouldn't say that, okay, I actually plan to uh, buy a house in five years time. I just put my market, uh, put my money into the market for five years and then I liquidate and then I take the money to buy, buy, buy houses or, or, uh, spend on other stuff, right? Because if your time horizon is less than five years or even less than 10 years, right? If you are hit with this kind of situation, then it will become a loss, right? Then it doesn't make sense to like just liquidate after you invested, uh, for three or five years and, and lose like 20 or 30% of your money, right? Which is very possible. That's why I would say that all these just have the, Yes, everyone should be worried on this and you should 
you shouldn't uh, say this this kind of situation won't happen uh, because it can always happen. And you just need to refer to history to appreciate that it just happened. I mean, these type of things happen often enough, right? You don't need to say, okay, I need to go back to 1930s uh, or go back to war period, that kind of things, right? You just need to look at in the past 10 or 20 years, there's plenty of examples already. And with that, we should be prepared if this happened, right? Then the next question is, if the market continue to drop, let's say like, over the next two or three years, what we will do, right? Will you just liquidate and just uh, be discouraged from investing? Or will you just say, okay, I know this is sounds a bit scary uh, and sounds a bit crazy, but looking at falling knife, looking at market continue to drop, but I'm, I'm just going to deploy my money and just buy, right? Just continue to accumulate my assets, right? And uh, we also need a bit of optimism here. Uh, and you, you always have to believe that it will turn out well after 10 or 20, 30 years of time, right? So that's why I said, okay, uh, be aware that this can happen, but doesn't mean that we should avoid investing now, especially for those who are young, right? If you only have like, let's say less than 10, 20, 30,000, right? Market can drop 10 or 20%. It's not a, a, a big problem from you, right? A bigger problem for those who are very young, right? Will be that, you know, uh, you just don't invest enough and then the market just continue to rally, then you're just like missing up on all these gains, right? I think that will be a much bigger loss. And that loss is called opportunity loss. Usually it's very uh, vague because you don't see like the real monies, right? It's just opportunity uh, loss, but but that, that one is quite costly as well. Now. Okay, I think that's all comment on this. Um, anyone else want to share your perspective? Okay, let's move on. Anyone investing in European companies? I think fear of World War Three and NATO counter response drove valuation down. I'm looking around. Anyone here want to give any comment? No? Actually, this one, I think... Um, Aside from individual stocks, now, let's say uh, who, who will invest in European companies, right? If you invest in VWRA, uh, your money, let's say 60% will be invested in, in S&P 500, which is US, right? Then 10% uh, will be emerging market. The rest will be like all this developed excluding uh, US market, which means a huge proportion will be in Europe. Because other than Europe, it will be like Japan, Canada, Australia. So you will have some exposure into, into Europe uh, geography. And then if you invest in IWDA, um, it's also similar. Um, we all will have some exposure. And for me personally, I have invested like small proportion into ASML, right? Uh, that one is Netherlands companies. So also have some exposure. But if your fear is uh, like all these like World War Three, NATO, these kind of things, right? Um, I'll just say that Actually, your worry is not just European companies because uh, Europe, right, they are very close with uh, US. And if you understand the supply chain, right, they are all interlinked between uh, US, Europe, um, Japan, or even like China, right? All these big economies, right? Because of the globalizations, they are all interlinked. So if there's any fear of World War Three or, or escalations of tension between uh, Ukraine, Russia, US, NATO, these kind of things, right? 
um, like your worry will not be just on the European companies. Uh, it will it will always be a global uh, worry. So don't have to focus so much on this. Um, like yes, if war war happens, right? Then what can we do, right? Uh, we, we, I mean, if the stock market suffer, then we we just suffer along with it. Um, we are investing in the companies. We are capitalists, right? Uh, all these companies worth a certain valuation because uh, we are not pricing in a war, right? Because if you are pricing in a high chance of war, I think all the uh, valuation in the stock market it should be like you should discount thirty to sixty percent, right? Yeah. So I think we all just need to be optimists uh, with regards to this. Uh. So, and and I, I, I'm personally optimistic uh, because, you know, what, one thing is very interesting with, with war is that, you know, the best way to prevent war, right, is actually to make all these uh, countries interlink together. For example, if US and NATO and Russia, they are all, in terms of their economy, they are linked together, right? It will make all these sanctions become very, very costly to both sides. And then it will become very hard to escalate. Uh. So actually, that, that's the best uh, way to prevent a war. So I think we all should be optimists uh, and then make and hope that all these countries, uh, they are all nice to each other. And then let's cooperate on, uh, on the economic fronts, right? And then let's the industry, all this economic industry be all interlinked so that we all make the cost of the war become much bigger and everyone will try their best to prevent the war. I think that's the the best hope that we have. Uh. But with regards to this question, I would say that, um, yeah, it's just a comment, uh, not really a, a, a question here, um, but I would say that no need to fear so much on war. Uh. Okay. Anyone want to comment on this? Okay, no, let's move on. Thoughts on cybersecurity for the long term and CrowdStrike mode. I don't have a view on this. Um, I'm looking around, see, Gavin, you want to comment? Are you here? Or is there anyone else that want to comment uh, on cybersecurity and CrowdStrike? Okay, um, no insight from me, so I'll just pass. Uh, let's say if anyone has any insight with regards to cybersecurity or CrowdStrike, feel free to like PM me, let me know, and then maybe we can arrange a session to talk about this. Uh, I think this is very niche area. Um, it's very hard to for me to comment uh, because I, I don't have much insight here. Okay, let's move on. Latest China inflation stay at 0.9% based on this outlook, will China reduce interest rates this month? Okay. Anyone, any Chinese expert here? <laughs> yeah, maybe I can take that. <laughs> yes, yeah, Leon, go ahead. Yeah, go I, ahead. Just joined, I just joined this chat. Yeah, so basically, they are targeting 5.5% GDP this year. I think a lot of street view is that uh, it's, a, it's a bit an aggressive goal, considering the whole Ukraine-Russia uh, crisis also. And they have the housing crisis uh, in in China to actually solve for. So basically, I think there will be a, a down, there will be a pressure uh, to reduce interest rate to boost monetary policy in China. But I think regarding monetary policy versus fiscal policy, I think the China's government view is always towards uh, fiscal policy because they are quite prudent 
they don't have the exorbitant like, privilege to print money like the US. So I think they will reduce interest rate, but not to the extent of what the US is doing. Yeah, so there's a diverging sort of monetary policy between the West and the East. Actually, in your view, right, uh, you know, people always say that, okay, US, they can just print, even um, mm. Europe, uh, ECB, they can just print. Right? Why, why China can't do that, given that their economy is uh, like not small like, as compared to all these Western economies? Because right now, the settlement right, is still mostly US-based, and a lot of the finances in, in the central bank reserve, they are still using US as the primary uh, trade currency. So because of the capital control in China, they, they are trying to prevent foreign capital from inflow, hot inflows and hot outflow to destabilize the economy. They are, so by controlling capital, there's not a lot of on, offshore rent being circulated around. So not a lot of people are keeping rent as a, as a reserve currency. So they can't really print money as much as US. Because when when the whole world is relying on US dollar as the primary currency, right, everyone has a skin in the game. So US can actually use this uh, to their advantage. Uh, because if they, they if they hurt the whole world, will hurt together. Yeah, actually, um, in the past, let's say a couple of years, right, we have uh, seen that people are talking about like China uh, try to prop up their not to prop up their currency, like it's, it's more like develop their currency, develop their, their economies and their monetary system up to the standard that they can serve as the reserve currency, right? Um, and it's also included in the, the, the IMF, what they call it, the, I, I forgot the name. The special, special drawing yeah, rights. Yeah, the special drawing rights, right? So so is there any development um, on, on that front? Uh? I think they are still trying to slowly liberalize their currency, you know? Um but in terms of stock market, they open up the Hong Kong exchange. But I think they are still quite cautious uh, in terms of foreign investments. So until until they open up that, that whole capital control, I think uh, rent will still not be used that widely yet. But as they can see from the Russian case, right, uh, the whole SWIFT sanction and how U.S. is trying to weaponize their currency, I think they will slowly shift towards uh, rent. But I think they will develop the central central bank uh, digital currency first so that they can have a blockchain to track where the spending is going to for the rent side of things. Yeah, this one, the central bank digital currency, uh, I think also mentioned quite a few times in the past, right? Is there any timeline or, or do we have the clarity on these things will happen? Uh? I haven't followed this quote very closely. No idea, but I think the government is trying to push it ASAP so that uh, they don't have to depend on the dollar so much. Actually, with this C, uh, they call it CBDC, uh, right? Uh, central, bank, central bank digital currency. Actually, it's quite good because they link the blockchain ledger technology together with a, a unit that the central bank can actually back up. So actually, there's quite a, a lot of use case for it because from the government's standpoint, they can see where the, where the fund flows are going so that they can tweak their monetary policy accordingly or their fiscal policy accordingly. And in terms of, let's say, supply chain, they, they can see where is it sourced to and the unit on of this CBDC is same as UN, right? That's how it works, right? Yeah. So that's the that's the idea of it. Basically, the central bank will issue out to the banks these uh, digital currencies. 
Yeah, this is very interesting. Right? It's a bit like the stable coins kind of concept, right? Mm-hmm. Correct. Just that you have the blockchain ledger to actually record the the transactions that are being done in the red. So, I mean, if you want to do funky things, you still keep cash. But if you are keen, then you will use CBDC and do not be worried about it. That's the basis. Yeah, very interesting. Okay. Thanks a lot for, for the comment. Please, please help me with the coming questions. Huh? Because today, I think it's only me. I, I'm afraid that this become a... What are you solo carrying the conversation? I just joined. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Let, let's uh, move on to the next one. How to calculate uh, free cash flow for banks? Is it even called that? I think this one I'll pass to you earlier. I, I, don't, I, I don't have insight also on this. Free cash flow for banks. I think banks are quite special in the sense that um, yeah, it's not like a normal operating company. Uh, there are two components of the revenue. First is net interest margin. Basically, uh, what you what you earn from your balance sheet by loaning out to customers minus away the cost of funds from your deposits or your bonds. So that's one major component of uh, uh, commercial banks or saving banks. Then you have your non-interest income, which is all your fee income, like uh, your credit card charges, uh, the fees that you take from advising on MA deals, capital market deals when they raise uh, equities on the on the on the equity capital markets or the bonds on the debt capital markets. So these two are your main uh, revenue stream per se. Then after that, you from from these two revenues, you have to minus the overheads, which is mostly your staff cost. Staff staff expense is usually your main bulk of banking. Then uh, minus away your office space, expenses, and your IT overheads stuff like that. Then, the, after you minus away, you will get what is called the pre-provisioning operating profit. So, if when you run a bank, you have to keep like a certain level of capital uh, in case the in case the bank toll. Uh. So basically, the central bank will require all, all your different banks to hold a certain uh, tier one capital and also like uh, tier two, tier three capital. So, every year, the bank will check their books and see whether they are funky debt or not. And then they will have they will run a model to sort of like uh, assess whether there's credit risk in their books. And with that, they will come up with a level of uh, general provisioning as well as a specific provisioning. So in terms of like last, in 2019 and 2020, there's a, there's a lot of general provisioning because um, banks were worried that people would default because of COVID. So they actually overlay a lot of general provisions. So that will reduce your PPOP, uh, pre-provisioning operating profit uh, down to your net profit, uh, uh, profit before tax, uh, then after you pay your tax. Yeah. So so in, in banks, you don't really see FCF per se. You see more of yeah, like yeah, net profit yeah, or, or PPOP. But so to be on that, right? Um, Post-COVID, actually people, a lot of banks... They were very cautious, so they actually did the over provisioning. Uh, they, they they set aside a lot of sums in case the the books go haywire in uh, 2019 and 2020. So this actually hit their net profit quite a lot, uh, accounting wise. But actually, 2021 onwards, uh, they realized that oh, with all the government measures, actually my 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 book is not hit that hard. So. In the case of U.S. banks, they have been writing back a lot of profits. So you, you could actually see that net profit rising. 
Yeah. But in in Singapore case, we the the local banks didn't really write back that much of the provisions because they they want to they they, they cannot be shown to you know optical optically speaking they cannot be shown to profit from the crisis. So they have to slowly write back the book. Yeah. Um. What else do I? Yeah. In terms of local banks or banks in general. Given a rising rate hike environment from the Fed, right? So, just now I mentioned that there's two components of the revenue for banks. One is the net interest margin, and second is the non-interest income. So, with the rate hikes, uh, assuming that your cost of funds are still the same, banks are expected to increase their net interest margin. So that's why there's a lot of investors flowing to banks for now. That's all for me. Thanks a lot for the very detailed explanation on how <laughs> on how the bank's uh, balance sheet and their income statement works, right? Yeah, I, I think you, you brought up a very good point with regards to banks, uh, which is that, you know, um, yeah, this free cash flow concept might not be that useful, but we can look at the net income, right? But the net income itself, because there's this huge component on the provision part, right, which is totally not under our control, right? You, you can just do all these uh, historical analysis and find that, okay, this bank is investable. And then in one year, uh, when all the fears is here and suddenly the, the bank will just say, okay, I need to provision more uh, because I might see that uh, the, I mean, uh, the non-performing loan will increase in the next one or two years, right? And just with one provision alone, um, it could wipe up the entire uh, net income for the year, right? So that all this scenario could always happen and it can happen very fast and it can happen uh, in a, like a huge amount of provisioning can, can be set in just one year, right? So if you are investing in banks and you want to have some insight on on, on like something to point you that this will happen and you want to sell your bank stocks before that, I would just say that it's actually very hard to do so because, you know, everyone... We'll, we'll try to guess what will happen in the future, right? The bank themselves will try to guess whether their, their non-performing loan will actually increase next year or, or in, in the coming years. So that, that's, that's also why, let's say if we compare different sectors, right? Um, let's say if there's any recession coming, bank stocks will be one of the first one to get hit first and then other sectors will get hit late, later, right? So I think that's the, the risk of uh, investing in bank, bank uh, sectors now. But if we want to look at it from a long-term perspective, yes, uh, no free cash flow, you can still look at the net income and try to see whether these are they're, they're at a healthy level or not. So, yeah. Th thanks a lot, uh, Leon, for, for the... Yeah, I think in banks, a lot of CFO, they, in terms of their outlook for the year, they will always have a target uh, return of equity. So I think that's the more correct uh, metric to look at. But if you want to track the whether their book is healthy or not, you will look at the credit costs in terms of uh, basis points, how much they actually attribute, and and also non-performing loan percentage, as you mentioned just now. Yep. Thanks a lot. Uh, let's move on. Uh, people always point to China and Russia saying that they aren't investable due to its politics. Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger say that they don't invest based on politics. Why? Maybe you break this into two parts of, uh, <laughs> I don't know, the, the first part that say they are not investable and then the part that say they don't invest on based on politics. Uh. Anyone else, anyone want to give your comment on why China is not investable?
No comment here. Everyone think that is investable. Let's go for more China. <laughs> yeah, maybe I, I, I share a bit on, on these views. I, okay, there are so many different views, right? If you follow Twitter, uh, watch YouTube here and there, I'll uh, just name one, one that I, the one that I remember at least. So I think the one that I remember is that, okay, they say, if you invest in Chinese companies, um, you know, Chinese regulators, they are not like US regulators, right? They can do things in a very uh, sudden manner. So one regulation, if the government want to do it, right? You, you, you just have zero doubt whether they can pull it off, right? They will just pull off before you realize about it, right? So this is why if you look at it from a company perspective, if you don't have enough time to react, right, and the government can just do whatever they want, right, then for sure it is a concern, right? Because some policies that the government uh, enact, it could be something that hurt the business. For example, you know, uh, some some industry, uh, the, regula the regulator has been like, try to guide the market towards uh, lower profitability just to help out with some certain market, right? Or certain segment of the economy, right? So as, as soon as all these companies that receive the guidance from the government, they, they will just follow, right? Because they, they, they can't fight the government. Whereas for, for US, right? I mean, the rule um, in terms of their regulations, all, all everything's are like more stable because they are already in this uh, for a long period of time. And if the government is trying to do something that's funny, right? All these corporates, they have uh, some, some, how to say, some influence on the, po on the politicians and they can try to shape the regulation in a way uh, that will protect their interests. Now. So I think this is the main difference if you are comparing, uh, let's say, US market versus uh, Chinese market. But does that mean that Chinese market is uh, uninvestable at all? So I think still come back to the to the same uh, same thing uh, same picture right because if you say okay like this um, is that means that okay U.S. market is just much better it's not the case also right because regardless of where you invest right there will still be risk that you are taking it's just that different type of risk right for example like if you invest in uh, U.S. market I mean generally speaking their valuation is higher than Chinese market right so if the valuation is high then and you invest in that uh, companies or that market, then you are taking on a valuation risk, right? Because for example, you invest in a market that is having PE of, uh, let's say 35 or 30, right? The business can still be solid and just because of the valuation drop, right? From 30 to 25, and then you will suffer a loss. Is that a risk? Yeah, for sure, it is a risk, right? Market valuation can always change. And what's the risk compared uh, the PE dropped from 30 to 25 versus a PE from 15 dropped to 10, right? For sure, the, the higher the PE, the valuation risk is higher. So it's just a different type of risk, right? That's why if you look at the investor around, right? Um, people, different people have different appetites towards different type of risk. There are people who just not willing to take on the valuation risk. The moment they see that the PE is like 40, right? They will just stay away. They say it's too expensive. I'm not comfortable to take on this valuation risk. I just stay away, right? Then there are also people who say, okay, if I invest in Chinese companies, the government can do whatever they want. And I can't even foresee what they will do next. It's just too uh, unpredictable to me. I'll just stay away, right? So I think all this, they are, it's fine, right? 
it's, it's still come back to what type of risk that you are comfortable with and then you just do accordingly. Now. So, so this is one with regards to the uninvestable part. And then let me also comment on the second part on why uh, they, they don't invest uh, based on politics. Uh. I think this one, you, you might want to like just listen to, um, you know, like Berkshire, shoulder meetings. Let's say you just watch in the past three or four years, right? If you can just watch further back, I think that's even better, right? Um, then, then you will have a sense on their uh, worldview in terms of their investment and so on, right? I think two of them, right, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, they don't invest based on politics. They don't invest based on macro. It's because they, they are like, they invest in business. I think even Warren Buffett, he uh, explained or, and reiterate again in the latest shoulder meetings, right? So he just said, I'm looking at the business. If the business have good fundamentals, have the mode, right? That means they can defend uh, against their competitions, right? They have some pricing power, discount attributes, right? Then they will just invest in the companies, right? So they, they don't try to predict like how will the macro environment looks like? How will the politics uh, environment looks like? This kind of things. They, they, they try to avoid that. Not to say these are the things that is irrelevant or will not impact the, sh the share price, right? For sure, they will impact, right? I think uh, Buffett also explained that if the interest rate just go up by, let's say, a couple of percent, right? The, all the valuation will, will get hit and then his portfolio will also get hit, right? All this, what he's trying to say that this will have an impact to the stock performance, to the share price. It's just that they don't have any insight or any age with regards to macro prediction or with regards to politics, uh, environment predictions. They focus on what they know best, which is on the fundamentals of the business. So that's why they will say, okay, and, and when we, we say about all these fundamentals, I think they focus a lot on the uh, cash flow generation of the business and also whether they can maintain the pricing power. I think these two will be uh, two, two of the most important factors that they are looking at. As long as these two are good, right? They don't really care whether uh, where they are, where, where this business is located in. Uh, because other stuff, they, they, they have no, like, no edge at all. And for example, if it is, they don't have any edge uh, in, in the predictions, right? They will just say, okay, this is in the too hard pile and they will just forget about it and just focus on investing in companies that they know best now. So this is their approach. Uh, doesn't mean that this is the only approach, right? If you look at uh, their investment, you will see that they don't invest in quite, quite a number of uh, tech companies, right? Because they don't understand these companies in uh, inside out. So they, they can't, they are not managed to pull out the, the buy decisions. Then they'll just stay away, right? Out of like thousands of companies, they are staying away from thousands of companies, which is also fine, right? But they have the track record to show that they know what they are doing now. So I think that's very important now. Wow, well, becomes a lot of talk already. I'll stop here. Any insight from anyone else want to share a perspective on this? Are the accounting practices of other countries the same as that of the US? That's the other big question. Yeah, yeah, I think this is, uh, that, that's true also. Um, yeah, different countries, just different accounting, different uh, uh, disclosure requirement. I, I mean, you, you can just compare Singapore versus um, Hong Kong versus China versus US. All these are different, right? So um, 
there are pro and con. Yeah, if 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 all this is important to you and it's become a concern, right? I I think stay stay away is like perfectly fine, right? Yeah, and it's the funny thing is that there there are people who say that Chinese uh accounting uh is like not transparent and so on, right? There's also friends that investing in Hong Kong markets, and then they look at the U.S. uh financial disclosure. They also say that U U.S. disclosure is not as good as Hong Kong one, right? So, so I think that there's a bit of uh qualitative uh judgment there, uh like different opinions with regards to the disclosure, right? So, yeah, you you just have to be comfortable with what you are investing, lah. Okay, I think let's move on. Uh, market keep dropping. Use lots of leverage. Lost a mortgage on my house. What to do? How to recover? What's the meaning of lost the mortgage on my house? Uh? Okay, can, can someone explain this to me? Anyone can explain this? What's the meaning of lost the mortgage? I thought the mortgage is the money. Say I buy the house. My house is 300000 I borrowed 200000 How do I lost the mortgage? Oh my house! I, I'm a bit blur. A bit. Maybe sure. this guy went to invest his two forty thousand and then lost the whole two forty thousand that he borrowed out from the home equity. Yeah, I actually don't. <laughs> maybe, maybe like re. I'm guessing now, right? Maybe do some refinance and then take the money and invest and lost huge portion of the money, right? I I I really don't know. I don't have in <laughs> any good advice. Um, I'll just reiterate the same message that uh, even like YCX also mentioned in the past, right? Which which I, I also mentioned the same, right? I mean, for those who are using interactive broker, it's, it's not a big problem for you just to like uh, turn on the margin, just to make sure that if you put in like one or 2,000 in, you can just invest directly. You don't have to wait for the cash settlement, right? But you need to keep that margin as a percentage of the portfolio at a very low level. Uh, don't, don't just level out uh, like, like do this kind of crazy things. Uh. Yeah, it's, it's very crazy when, when you use lo lots of leverage. Uh. So I'll just stop here. Mm, I don't I like not enough um, details to comment a lot on, on, on the situation here. Uh. What well, do you think is the most stable uh, asset uh, right now? Like uh, the value will not fluctuate up or down type of asset. Other than cash. Uh, you know. Like the value is very stable to cash and will not fluctuate up and down. Maybe plus minus two plus minus two percent in a year. That kind of. Yeah, I think. Uh, I mean, just forget about like the, the real value first. Uh. if you benchmark according to nominal value, right? Then uh, the simplest one should be cash. Other than cash, it will be like some short dated bonds. Uh. You know, like like mm -hmm. uh, it could be deposit. It could be uh. Money market funds, some short-term bond can, funds. IBKR can buy bonds. Um, it depends on how you see, you know. Because I imagine for the listener here, you could come from, uh, let's say Singapore or, or let's say Malaysia, right? If you care about like really preserving the value in your local currency, which is like Singapore or ringgit, right? Then uh, you have to invest in the currency that is in your base currency, right? Which is Singapore and and or, or Malaysia ringgit, right? Then uh, IBKR doesn't help. But let's say if you are comfortable to invest in uh, US dollar and you have some uh, confidence on like the value of US dollar will not depreciate a lot against your local currency, right? 
And, and then you have a lot of more uh, other choices, for example, like some short-term bond funds, short-term bond ETF uh, in in um, in USD denomination. Uh. But I will uh, actually discourage you from doing so. It's because, you know, you are preserving the value in a sense of relative to US dollar. Like, like let's say if your base currency is US dollar and you, you invest in a short-term um, USD bond funds, right? then you have low volatility. But let's say if anything goes wrong, right? Uh, US dollar can always depreciate against, uh, let's say, Malaysia ringgit or, or Singapore dollar, right? Then you're not getting a high return and you are taking a, a, a huge uh, FX risk by invest in discount instrument. So I, I would say, um, I, I would discourage you from doing so. Lah. If you can try to invest in the bond funds or money market funds in your base currency, that should be the first choice and, and just mess up like all these, you know, like, like all these bank high yielding instruments, right? I don't know what they call it. Like all these multiplier, uh, DBS multiplier, uh, or this sing life just to max up this kind of investment first. Uh, and, and, and on top of that, if you want to invest in some bond funds, you can do that. Uh, I wouldn't encourage against the U.S. bond funds, unless really your base currency is U.S. dollar, like you are free to go anywhere in the market to, to retire, right? Then, then that's fine. Okay, uh, I, I think I'll just move a bit fast here. There's a couple of questions, um, but um, we won't cover all. I'll try my best now, okay? Because now it's 12 o'clock already. Uh, Broad China, Hong Kong tech keep falling, keep buying, but keep falling. Is it still worthwhile to hold on? I think this one I've commented uh, above. Anyone else have any insight on this? Yeah, I think uh, to add on on this is that still come back to the uh, target allocation that you want, right? Because uh, I'll repeat again, please don't just average down just because the stock has dropped. I think this is uh, in general not a good... Uh, not a good way to invest. I don't. I wouldn't say this is, this is stupid or, or what. Uh, because you, you see, right? Some people will say that the stock price has dropped. Why, why are you not investing, right? But I, I just think that um, you should buy according to your uh, saving rate, and then you should have a target allocation that fit your profile or, or your belief, right? You know, come back to the, the initial section where I went through, like, for example, this is my, uh, investment portfolio. I have certain target allocation. Uh, preferably, I want this target allocation to be in, uh, in, in the target that I want. Of course, that target you can change over time, but I don't want to suddenly, you know, having this kind of pie, uh, right now. And suddenly, two years later, you will see that actually I have 50% of my money invested into, let's say, um, pick one name, right? Let's say in uh, NVIDIA. Suddenly, 50% in NVIDIA next year. And why 50%? It's because NVIDIA keep on dropping uh, $10 or $20 every uh, month from now. And because it dropped, right, I forced myself to buy. And it dropped, I forced myself to buy. Right. And then become like a 50% of my portfolio. It doesn't make sense. Right. Because the weight, the target weight, right. It should correspond to your uh, conviction on the company uh, in terms of how much return that you expect from this company. And also you should consider the risk that you are taking. Right. It's just the risk and the return of that company. Then you determine the, your target allocation. 
And it shouldn't be the price action in the next 12 months, right? Because what happened is that we, we want uh, over time, those companies that do well, right? They should give you like 100, 200, 300% kind of uh, gain, right? But those companies that, that actually not doing so well, you want it to be as small as possible, right? So that's why you should just try as much not to react based on the price actions. Though. Yeah, so, so that's why I say don't, don't try to like uh, succumb to this like, wow, the price keep falling, you force yourself to buy. Keep falling, then you force yourself to buy. I, I don't think that's a, a good way. That, at least that's not my approach. Uh. Try, try to resist the temptation to average down. You, you should pay attention to your other holdings, uh, which might not drop as much, right? You should also buy some, you know, be, be, be more balanced uh, when it comes to allocations. And if you don't know how to do all these things, then probably just do, uh, indexing also is a good idea. Don't, don't just, um, uh, you know, I explain buying, keep buying and, and force yourself to buy. Okay. Uh, just stop me, let's say, if you have, have anything to, to uh, add on. Uh. If not, I'll just continue. Uh, many say stagflation coming up. How to prepare for that? Buy gold or crypto? Uh, stagflation, if really is a stagflation, then all you can do is buy food and commodities. Yeah, I think that's... um. That's very true. Actually, here I can share a bit, uh, some, some story. Not sure I feel I have shared before. I don't think so, right? Actually, the current situation, right, um, with regards to Ukraine, uh, Russia, and then we already see that it hit two, two, uh, two areas quite badly, right? The first one is the energy market, and then second one is the commodities, for example, like wheat, right? All these, all these food sources. Actually, uh, if you look at this situation and you just extrapolate, it's really quite worrying. Um, the situation might turn bad, like become worse uh, over the next six or 12 months, right? It could happen. But actually, uh, you don't really need to look far, like you don't need to imagine what could happen, you know? You just look around, right? There will be some countries that's already facing this. Yeah. Have I mentioned about Sri Lanka before? I don't know whether I mentioned before. Like, if I have mentioned before, please stop me. Uh, because um, I know Sri Lanka situation is quite bad. Uh, they are inflation, which is just close to 10%, let's say three months or four months back. It is now at 16%. And then their food uh, inflation right, is already between 30 to 40%. And um, their government is doing all this capital control, meaning that if you hold their currency, right, uh, which is the LKR currency, you can't actually go to foreign exchange and just exchange to US dollar in the hope that they can, that can actually help to preserve the wealth. That is actually illegal. Um, only, I, I mean, in the past, uh, uh, foreign exchange only uh, is allowed for those who are going overseas. Let's say if you are... Um, if you are traveling and then you need to show some proof that you are traveling and then you can also exchange to a certain limit, right? So, so there's a very tight capital control, currency control. You can't do much. So you see, they are in a country that is already in a bad situation, right? Um, things can turn very bad and the government already run out of money. And you can see that, right? Because, uh, Sri Lanka itself, right? They are in terms of energy, they are net. Uh, not like net, uh, they are really importer. So they need monies 
to buy uh, oils and then use that oil to generate the electricity in the country and the country run out of money. They don't have money or like, like literally they run out of money. So what happens is they don't have money to pay for the oil. No oil, no electricity. No electricity means that they have to cut down their, uh, you know, they have to ration the electricity usage. So outside of their capital city, right, which is Colombo, right, um, they only have eight hours of um, electricity per day. So 16 hours, no electricity. So what to do, right? So, you know, that kind of situation is that, you know, th this is like truly like stagflation scenario. What happens is, is that if you only have eight hours of electricity, actually quite a number of business, they can't run already. You know, for example, like restaurant, your fridge also cannot use if you only have eight hours of um, electricity per day, right? Some businesses, small businesses already closed down uh, just because of this, right? Business closed down means that people lose their jobs. I mean, you don't have to like study a lot of uh, um, economy to understand that they are already in such a situation, right? And for those who talking about all this CPF situation, right? Like, okay, will uh, Singapore government just reduce their CPF rate from 4% to whatever percent, right? Actually, you just need to look at Sri Lanka. So what happened is that, um, you know, they also have their CP, like their version of CPF fund, right? Um, the government will, this is not real, you know, the government, the government already said um, out of the X percentage of the investment return for the their CPF fund, right, a portion, right, will actually just tax by the government and that money will use up by the government to help with their fiscal. Um, this is like literally taking the monies from the CPF, which should belong to the, to the, to the citizens, right? They just take the money and, and put it into the government coffer and just help out with the fiscal. So I, I mean, you, you don't have to imagine stuff. You just look at what is happening now. There are countries that's already in these situations, right? And just to echo on the view that, that, that YCX just said, right? In that scenario, what happens with the peoples, right? So, you know, the, it's really by just buying commodities that can help out with the, uh, to hedge the scenario. So what happened is that, you know, people stay, um, there are limit on how much rice that you can buy from the supermarket. Let's say you can only buy two bags, right? They, they will just go to the supermarket, even though they have enough rice. Um, they will just buy some, buy, buy food, uh, buy food and then just store at home uh, because you know that with that kind of inflation, right? If you just store uh, your wealth in the form of um, your currency, then you just like uh, uh, inflated away. No? I mean, you don't preserve the real value of the currency. No? So they would just buy stuff, uh, anything that can can last a longer longer period, right? They would just, just buy stuff and, and just um, store it at home. No? And you know, when this, this uh, crazy buying happenings, right? This is what we call, uh, it, it would like spiral towards hyperinflation because nobody want to ca uh, keep cash anymore. The, the interest rate given by bank could be like 10, 15% and, and people don't want to, 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 to put their money in deposits, right? Because they are literally looking at their uh, currency notes turning into like toilet paper, right? Yeah. So that's the scenario for hyperinflation. It is very, very scary. Uh, if you read all these um, articles that came out in the past one or two weeks saying that we are experiencing stagflation or um, hyperinflation, this kind of words that come out, I just want to tell you that this is definitely not the case. Uh, the, as, 
as, as, as you still comfortable to keep your money in the banks, right? That's not the, the scenarios that, that, that is so worrying. You know, when you are holding cash on your hand and you just want to dispose the cash and just turn it to something else, right? Okay, that's the scenario that, that we are talking about. And circulation but, but also... Said that, yeah. uh, the situation can turn from good to bad very, very fast. Yes. It's just like you, yes. you just see in one week's time, you look at Russia, <laughs> basically the economy just just disappeared. Yeah. Just literally just disappeared. It's not even yeah. in a recession or downtrend, it just disappeared. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I, I, it, it can turn very fast. Uh, um, yeah, we need to careful on that. Mm. Yeah, what to do? <laughs> Maybe buy some commodities, precious metals. I don't know if you are really worried. Um, I think that's the way to go. The idea yeah. is that also if you buy all these commodities, uh, like, like even if you buy gold, right, and you try to transport the gold outside of the country, you know that all the countries, they will always have those declarations or if you carry too much gold, they will confiscate the gold and stuff like that. Then it becomes that you cannot even transfer your value out. So like there's also the case where if you look at Argentina, there, there was a, the Argentina don't default like how many times already. Uh, they are over the last 30 years or something. And the businesses that invest in Argentina, right, they, they even even when they do their transactions in uh, USD cash, uh, they are not even doing the Argentina. The Argentina government can still say, oh, you are not allowed to transfer the USD cash out of our banks. And then uh, they, they are unable to transfer the money out. Then they start to think about ways to actually um, convert the money into assets or commodities and ship it out. And they will start to think, oh, can I just buy gold and transfer it out? Answer is also no. Can I buy like other metals and transfer your answer is also no. Then it becomes like they get to the point whereby they might even consider buying just like uh, cars or buying boats and whatever just to drive it out of the country or things like that. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But depending on the scenario that you are trying to hedge, right? Uh, let's say if you your goal is to transfer out of the country, then I would say maybe like all this like cryptocurrency, Bitcoin is the way to go because you don't even need to like carrying the physical wallet, right? You can just memorize your your uh you know the twenty twenty four words code, then you can just just transfer out, right? I think yep, that, yep. that's. Uh, that's the scenario that you try to hedge. But let's say if that's not the scenario that you say, okay, it might be some uh, stagflation. I will just stay uh, in my country and then how to preserve my, my wealth, right? Then you will come up with different alternatives, right? It really depends on the scenario that you try to hedge now. Okay, let's uh, move on. When will Russia war end? Any insight? Wow. Is there any, any geopolitical uh, expert here? I think there's a lot of propaganda put out by the Ukrainian to show like, oh, they are doing this and that. But if you look at the actual map of the where Russia has taken over and things like that, Russia is actually slow, even though they are experiencing losses here and there, they're actually still advancing. Uh, it's just they are advancing slower. So it's really a matter of like right now, whether the advance will stop. If it doesn't stop, then eventually they'll take over Ukraine. There's, there's nothing much can be done there. Yeah, thank, thanks uh, for the comment. Yeah, I do agree with uh, your statement on the propaganda. I think 
it's both sides, uh, both on the Ukraine side and both on the Russia, you can also see. Uh, I'll say that like 90% of what we are reading on Twitter, right? I think how much can we believe, right? I'm a, a bit skeptical on that. Uh. But come back to these questions, right? I think uh, let's say if you are very frustrated of on these situations with the war, right? I say, oh, because of war, then now we are having all these different problems later hit on the supply chain, um, then hit on the, and you know, so so many sectors and you are, you're feeling this uh, very frustrating. Um, I would say that, yes, maybe true uh, the war at some point, they might actually like um, come to an end, right? But this tension between, let's say, US and Russia, I don't think it will end that soon. Nah. So just be prepared, like this uh, uh, tension or, or like maybe a little bit of escalation from both sides, right? This, this one, it could actually last for quite long period of time. I mean, just come back to, uh, go, go back, like, let's say, uh, during Trump period where you see there's this uh, trade war between US and China, right? I mean, easily it dragged for one or two years or even until now, you can still say they are, there's still ongoing uh, trade tension between these two countries, right? So I think this is like, you know, following uh, Ray Dalio's uh, video, you, you understand that he's talking about like, okay, rise of uh, different power, right? I mean, this kind of tension is quite common. And then I think we, we all just need to be like, um, just get used to this kind of environment. Uh, don't, don't get discouraged because, you know, with changes, there, there, there's always opportunity around, right? And if this tension causes some, some uh, uneasiness or some fear in the market, there's always like uh, opportunity for us to, to invest, right? So try to see it from a positive perspective. Don't, don't be too uh, frustrated uh, because of the, the war. Uh. I mean, we, we should be like, be sympathy on, on the uh, victims there. Uh, but I mean, coming from, uh, for those who are outside, like, um, investor perspective, right? I think just be prepared that this, this will drag on. Okay. Let me read out the next one. Any thoughts on using leverage during this fear market condition? I've said, <laughs> said this. Vice CX, anything to add? Please, please don't, don't, don't touch about the core options. <laughs> don't, don't option, don't, don't leverage. <laughs> Yeah, I think uh, come back. Uh, you, you see, S and P five hundred now it's just like what fifteen percent drop from from the high, right? It could drop twenty five percent, could drop thirty five percent, right? Could drop forty five percent. Why why leverage now, right? Uh, I'm I'm feeling very funny when people ask this question. Like, oh, uh, it, it has the market bottom already. Like uh, the best answer is that it's fifty fifty, right? I mean, you you can look ahead uh, five months look ahead one year, look ahead two years, it's always like 50-50 or you can argue it's like 55% it could go up or 45% could come down like, because it drifts upward over time, right? But, but don't don't just um, like having this, this, this thinking that market has already bottomed, hence I need to leverage up and I need to take advantage on this dip and it will go up, right? Don't, don't have that kind of... Um, uh, how to say that that uh, mindset uh, because it's very dangerous, you know, and it will it will get very stressful when when you thought that market has bottom and then it just dropped another ten percent from there. So so don't don't make your life so stressful. Please uh prioritize your sleep, okay? Uh, inflation in USA now staggering seven point nine percent. What can we do from here? No insight. Uh, I have shared all my view with regards to this. Anyone else want to share like? On this, any comment, Punsong, Keith? 
Mr. Maximus, any insight here? Next one. Ways to endure bear market. Hey, they click double click. Uh. Oh, what happened? Um, yeah, I just know that one I have already shared, right? How to endure. Just say, uh, see any bear market as an opportunity to accumulate. And as long as you still plan to accumulate for the next, let's say, 10, 20 years, right? It shouldn't be a problem, right? If you are, I mean, if you are concerned with the outlook of the market, what you should think of is not to sell your investment um, and stay in cash, right? What you should think of is maybe just be prepared to like work uh, longer so that you have even more buffer for your retirement, right? Or um, try find a ways to increase your, your active income, right? Yeah, that's my suggestion. Next one, what are the potential ways banks can be disrupted? Actually, I think we discussed this um, in the chat. I don't have more insight, but let's say, right, let's say if we are able to get uh, Mr. Lu uh, from 1M65, right, then we can discuss this topic in more details because he's involved in, in you know, like some fintech, uh, that there's more, he has more visibility and more insight in terms of how, what are all these fintech is doing, right? So whether they can really disrupt uh, the banks or not, I think we still need to see, right? But based on the uh, discussion that we had uh, last round when we discussed about like like uh, different values that was provided by um, banks, right? And then see which, which, which are these uh, services uh, or values that is provided can be easily disrupted. I would say the, the response so far is like, let's say 60% actually things that not so easy because they are not so easily replaced. Uh. But there's always that 30 or 70% uh, that could be replaced or already slowly been replaced. So um, some disruption will come, but um, to the extent that will make banks become uh, worthless or, or zero, uh, I think so far the consensus is that it's not going to happen. Uh. Um, yeah, that's all. Anyone want to comment on this or anyone from banking? I'm smiling here. <laughs> want to want to chip in a bit on here on, on this question? Okay, no, let's move on. How can our stock portfolio profit from stagflation? Wow, I think we discussed all. So, uh, nothing more to add. Uh. Stagflation is very tough, you know. The stagflation is made out of two words, right? Um, you have inflation, and then you you have some sort of recession at the same time. So imagine that the companies that you invest in, right? It could be Singapore stocks, it could be like 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 uh, S and P five hundred stocks, right? You see the revenue keep dropping, and the revenue keep dropping. All these uh, expenses also you are not able to cut because of the inflation, right? then earnings for sure will drop, right? It's very tough environment for stocks. Da. So please be prepared if you're investing in stocks. This is the, uh, the worst environment to be in. But you put your money in bonds, also you, also you will suffer uh, losses from a real uh, value perspective. Da. So this is a very tough environment. Yeah, commodities uh, is the way, la, but how much you want to spend buying a block of gold and just park it in a safe, right? You do your own allocations, though. 
Okay, next one. Facebook can buy. Actually, and here anyone here invest in Facebook? Uh, I don't recall that. I, I think it's good to have those who invest in the company to talk about the, the companies, right? Honestly, I, I, I can't recall anyone here can comment on this now. Maybe I'll just say, uh, maybe you can just listen to the um, Monish Pabrai interview. I think there's a there's a interview uh, that he just gave that talked about Facebook, and then he's quite confident that even excluding all the metaverse stuff, right, they could just uh, easily double in a couple of years' time, right. So I think that's a very bullish view on Facebook. Um, then after that. You understand the bullish argument, try to think of a couple of bearish argument and then just do your um, assessment on this. Uh. Okay. Any other view on this? If not, let's pass. Um, any good books recommendation? I think for this question, let's all together uh, need some help from all the gurus here. Uh, we, do, we do a compilation on, on this uh, and then um, see... I, I think we, we compile in the past, but in, in the form of text, right? So, so let's do a one one more update. Then, then I think this is uh, very helpful for those uh, who is especially new to investing. Now, I don't want to run run through my my what what I'm remembering now. I think we, we need to compile. Okay, the next one, Rivian cash holding is about 50% of its market cap, but they also just cut their production guidance by 50%. Thoughts. But Gavin, you ask question usually this this our question. I will just head it head it back. Uh, like just ask you there. I, I don't have any any insight. I haven't looked at the Rivian uh uh balance sheet at all. I don't even know it's like so cheap now, like fifty percent of their market cap. But one thing for sure is that they are very smart to raise their capital uh at a very high valuation. Uh, that's why you know they can have a huge uh cash buffer now and the market just revert back to a um, sensible level, right? I think this is uh, quite interesting. But the question is, you still need to come back to like the valuation, right? Meaning that um, in this sense, PE doesn't make sense. They don't have earnings, right? But what we, what another um, uh, metrics to look at is the, okay, no EV, EBITDA also, right? But what, what we want to look at is that you should take the market cap, right? Minus out the cash positions, right? And look at that uh, business value, right? And compare that business value versus like how much we are expecting them to grow, uh, to wrap up their production and then to get some, uh, you know, some, some profit or some cash flow out of the business and do some discounting back, right? And, and that present value of that cash flow, you should compare against this, uh, like the market value minus the cash positions and then do a, uh, like just divide them and see what's the ratio, right? But you still need to come up with this, uh, like the outlook in terms of how much they can grow. Uh. And to me, this one is a bit hard because they don't even, you know, I, I think prototype wise, they are, they already have, right? It's not a concern on that. I think the, their, their next challenges is how to ramp up their productions, right? You know, from the current, I don't know how, how many cars they are producing now, right? From 1,000, can they actually ramp up to 10,000? And from 10, can they ramp up to 100,000 cars, right? I think that's the, you know, I, I don't know how strong is their engineering team. How can they pull it off or not? You know, these things is not that easy. I just want to ask, uh, 
any one of your uh take out cash on your portfolio and then put inside CPF. Like let's say if you're above fifty five and you can take out any time. You you mean do the top up into CPF? Yeah, yeah. It's like you take out loan on your portfolio, and then oh. you put inside CPF. Let's say because the loan uh interest, let's say the loan interest we fix it at one point five percent now, okay? And your CPF OA is at two point five percent. Then all you have to do is to make sure that your portfolio value is uh uh how you put it delta neutral, right? Then you just earn that one percent from the CPF gains, right? While tight hiding over the whatever market. Because if let's say you're above fifty five, and you can take out that two point five percent anytime, your CPF OA lah, then you can effectively use it to you can park your cash. You can make if you can make your portfolio in your IBKR as delta neutral as possible, then you can park your cash inside, uh, the CPF to get that two point five percent. While paying the one point five percent uh interest, uh, let's say. I I don't know the details rules. Uh, but let's say the money that you put into the CPF that way, right? Can you withdraw it anytime that you like? Yeah, OA you can withdraw anytime, and but there's also a limit to how much you can put in. Uh. so let's say you can put in thirty seven k uh per year or something. So you can at, at least you still have thirty seven k per uh you can just borrow the thirty seven k and put it inside uh. Yeah, I do see the your your rationale, uh, which is like try to arbitrage the yield difference compared to the CPF, right? Um, yeah, yeah. I I think okay. I don't know. Anyone else have any insight on that? You can share first. Uh okay. I share a bit over my end. Um, I think it depends on what your strategy is at fifty five. So so one of the strategy that people propose is doing uh essay shooting. So. My ideal scenario is that I will uh, max my RA uh, using using the essay shooting. So you, during the shoot shoot phase, I max out my RA by transferring whatever OA to uh, RA, and then I have my ERS uh, down at the RA. And um, when uh, so the idea is that whatever balance in the OA, I will transfer out, and I unshoot my uh, SA. So now. In my in my ideal scenario for C CPF at fifty five is two uh, main engine running, which is going at four percent, and I think that's the optimum uh, level that you you can make it run. And if let's say you want to do the other strategy uh, of building the OA, right? The issue is that you the money go in is easy, but to come out right first you need to deplete your SA, which is the higher yielding four percent. Um, the idea is whether you want to do it as a, a retirement uh, for personal retirement uh, purpose or you want to do it as a legacy. So you have seen that, that I think in 1M65, people sharing about uh, how they build the OA uh, to substantial sum and then they intend to draw using interest. Those are legacy uh, planning. But legacy planning also means that you are not optimizing your, your resources in that sense uh, because you when you you pump in all the money in uh, OA is blocked by SA, which you need to draw first before you can touch it back. So so you need to have that uh that understanding first uh, before you deploy the strategy of pumping excess cash uh, into the OA. Yeah, I understand that part. So what what I'm actually talking about is let's say you have 
I, I just give a numbers example. Let's say you have like a uh, million dollars, okay? And you have a million dollars and maybe let's say you put in like, um, let's say let's say you were split over your lifetime, you build up a million dollars and you have like 80% of it in stocks and 20% in CPF. Reasonable, reasonable. Uh, so you maybe have about uh, 200K in CPF. Quite, quite a reasonable assumption. Uh. So right now you have 800K in stocks. And you know that the value of these stocks, let's say you just put all into an index. So maybe it has dropped by 10%. So 800K, you probably uh, minus 80K. So you have 720K, right? And what, what you want to do is that, um, and and you have this, uh, C, let's say you are 55, and you have this CPF thing over here, which allows you to put in like, let's say an extra 37K per, per, per year or something, right? Or... Uh, whatever number is at uh, 37k a, a year and you can put it in and you can get uh collect that interest on it minimum of 2.5 and 4 uh, 4% for SA or uh, 2.5 for OA uh then what you can do is that you can effectively just over the next 10 years 55 to 65 you can transfer 370 uh, th- uh 370k uh, from your stocks all over to your all over to your uh CPF Without losing the pop, without losing the exposure to the stocks, because your stocks, you you are still holding it. It's just that you are borrowing from it and putting it into the CPF, and then you are collecting the interest from the CPF. Correct. So, so that's what I'm saying as a strategy that can be done. And let's say at the same time you are still getting like some amount of money from your uh, income or whatever. Anytime, if let's say the stocks just go too low. Then you just pump in more to to make up for the to make up for loan uh, requirements, but at the same time you are not really losing anything because you already borrow out that money and put into CPF OA. And at any point, if let's say the market really goes very bad, and let's say maybe your stocks portfolio uh, lose fifty percent, let's just take that. So maybe it goes down to four hundred k. At least, at the very least, right? You can. You you and you have an income. You can actually think about it as like, oh, at the very least, I'm actually buying the stocks. I'm buying more of the stocks. I'm putting more cash. But at the same time, the cash that I really withdraw to loan out, right? I'm actually gaining. I've I've actually taken out a portion of it and put it into CPF. Am I actually gaining from it? So it's actually offset, and I'm and overall, it's still a net gain compared to, let's say, just putting it your stocks parked over there and the 800K maybe just lost 50% of its value to 400K and you did nothing. Yeah, so that's, that's what I'm, my, uh, what I'm uh, looking at to see how the numbers balance out. Yeah, I think, <clears throat> I think like for myself, right, I have my CPF, um, still have some small amount of money in my CPF, even in the OA account, right? So uh, like I, I've done the calculation also, right? Because, you know, putting in CPF, I get the 2.5%. And then if I um, just use the margin in the interactive brokers, right? The margin rate is so low, right? So so let's say if I can uh, withdraw my, or how to say, if I can use the CPF OA money and just invest in uh, like S&P 500, right? 
I'd rather not do so. I'd rather just leave the money there, earn the 2.5%. And then if I want to get the same exposure, I just leverage up my uh, interactive brokers and I can get the same exposure, right? I, I do see that it makes sense uh, just to take advantage on the difference in the uh, interest rate. But just need to careful that uh, if you have a portfolio of stocks and then you take up the loan, meaning that you margin in your broker account, right? And the money is out, right? Then you need, really need to be careful with the uh, margin requirement and liquidations, uh, because you, you know sometimes all these rules change, parameter change, and then suddenly they can just close your position at, at at whenever they like it, right? This one I think is quite dangerous. So you need to have a uh, sufficient enough buffer in the broker portfolio, and then to oh. a certain extent you can do a bit, now. I think not 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 huge issues, right? Hmm. Right, and let's say you have because anyway you can only do a minimum, you can only do a maximum of the seven k a year. So let's say let's say you just take whatever amount your portfolio is at fifty five. I'm sure people have somewhere between zero point two to two million or whatever amount that they have, uh, and they can they can slowly just borrow against their stock portfolio in IBK uh, and just put it into a CPF, and because. When they put it into a CPF through the, the through that uh top up right, which is thirty seven k, it tops up into the OASA, and ideally you never have to redraw it because if you redraw it as the SA four percent first, but if you do have to redraw it, you can at any point in time because you are above fifty five and you can just take it out. So the 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 risk over there is pretty low and you're only parking in 37k a year yeah so you can just slowly just borrow out that amount uh, if let's say you have a sizable portfolio in your uh, ibkr uh, and just loan against it and get that 2.5 percent and you pay that uh, whatever 1.5 i mean at most it goes two percent you, you are still gaining that 0.5 percent out of it then if you can do that you are effectively gaining that uh, one to two, one to uh, zero point five to one percent of interest. Yeah, yeah. I think one point I want to add here is that please bear in mind that this uh, IPKR margin rate, right? It is packed to the not packed It is tied to the um, you know the I think it's LIBOR or something, some some short rate uh, US short rate uh. So you know now we are talking about rate hike coming soon, right? It's in in the coming week, right? A couple of months later, let's say by end of the year, right? Uh, you know, this uh margin rate will also increase, and then uh, let's say the delta between this margin rate versus the um crediting rate that CPF is giving, right? It might already become like zero. You know, you don't have that uh arbitrage opportunity anymore uh when it comes to next year. So true, just true, to true. add on that, <laughs> but maybe okay, CPF goes up as well. <laughs> yeah, um. Anything else? Anything that you guys want to discuss or want to ask? If we can stay on for five more minutes. Because just now there's one question I saw on the on the phone also uh, before we close the call. Yeah? Uh, the person asked whether I have a short-term positions of uh, you know futures to hedge my long-term portfolio. Uh, I mean, for, for those, I, I shared this, uh, but, but just for clarity, um, I shorted the futures for a couple of weeks 
And then I already closed it with, with some, some small gains there. And right now, in terms of my short portfolio, right, I don't have any futures. I only have like a couple of uh, sell put options, uh, like those very safe ones, uh, like, like very far from the current price, uh, the market, and, and very short uh, maturity as well. So, you know, these are like some, some, some nickels, uh, collecting nickels uh, in front of the steam roller, you know. <clears throat> but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not doing any kind of hedging uh, in my short-term portfolio. Uh. It's not like I'm showing you, I'm staying invested in the in the long-term portfolio and then on the other side that I'm not showing, I'm doing the shopping, right? It's not the case, uh, just just to let you know. Okay, um, that's for the transparency sake. Uh. Um, that's all I have for this week. Anyone else have any comment? If not, we, call, we, we end the call. All right, no. Uh, Thanks a lot for everyone who has commented and joining the call. Then um, see you in the next one. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye.